0: Before I dive into to the sermon this week, I just want to, to share with you something. Um, last week in the middle of my sermon, I, I stopped and I, I prayed, and I kind of, um, I didn't mean to do this, but I kind of like blamed you for not listening. <laughs> and um, I, I just want to say that that wasn't what I meant to say. Um, I have this experience every once in a while when I preach, and I, I just want to invite you into it. Um, it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, I feel like there is um, an invisible wall between me and you. And it, it may be sometimes just because I'm maybe not connecting with it well or not communicating well, um, but I think, I think mostly I think it's spiritual. And, and I think that there is a battle going on while we are here on Sunday mornings uh, for us to hear God's Word. And sometimes it seems to me that, that uh, there's just this wall. And there's been times where it's, it, like, it's so intense that I just want to stop and, like, never preach again. Like, it's, it's that. It's really, really hard. And so it happened, like, six months ago, and I decided that, and I kind of, like, will, like, get through the sermon and just kind of, like, collapse in my mind. Um, and so I decided the last time it happened that I'm not going to do that anymore, <laughs> that um, if I feel, have that experience, I'm just going to stop and pray. And so, um, so if... If that happens in the future that's that's what's going on, and so it's a cue for you to uh, to just pray all the harder for me and for us as we hear god's word okay. so let's pray together. Father, we do ask that your word would speak to us powerfully today. Lord, I pray that the the life of Jesus and the miracles that he performed and his interactions with people and the stories that we hear today, uh, Lord, that it would meet us right where, right where we are today and your Holy Spirit would speak to us and transform us and make us more into the followers of Jesus that you're calling us to be. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. We're finishing up a section in the Gospel of Matthew that takes us through a series of miracles that Jesus performed. And the focus of these stories, as we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, has been on Jesus' authority and his power. And after the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed because Jesus spoke with authority. It's with, with, uh, how Matthew wraps up the whole Sermon on the Mount, that the crowds were amazed because this man spoke as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And then Matthew moves into these series of, of miracles, and it's as if Matthew is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, uh, after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus performs miracle after miracle after miracle that demonstrate the authority that he, he comes with and he ministers with. The first three of those stories uh, was a story of, of a leper and the story of the, the Roman centurion and uh, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And in those stories, Jesus obviously demonstrates his authority to heal those people, but, but what we saw that under, underneath that, that spectacular action of, of healing people of their, uh, of their, um, of their bodies their sicknesses. Well, what we saw is that, that Jesus was breaking down barriers, and he was stepping into the lives of people who were religious outsiders, and he moves towards them, and, and he says that through him, they experience the presence of God. Last week, there was the story of the calming of the storm and the healing of two demon-possessed men and the healing and forgiving of a paralyzed man. And in these stories, Matthew was telling us that Jesus carries God's authority. And Matthew wasn't being subtle at all. He is saying, he is telling us, showing us stories about things that Jesus did that only God can do. Only God can calm storms. Only God has power over the spiritual forces of evil. Only God forgives. And what we saw last week is that Jesus is the one who holds all authority, and he is also the author of grace. And so the question for us at the end of the sermon last week was whether we will be like Matthew— and allow Jesus to meet us at that point of our greatest shame, like Matthew was met there at his tax collector's booth, where we will allow Jesus to meet us there at our point of greatest shame and understand that his power and his authority are there in that place for us. And he wants to extend his grace in that place of greatest shame. He wants to extend his grace to us there. And so in that story last week, Matthew framed those three miracle stories of the calming of the sea and, uh, and the, two, the healing of the two demon-possessed men and the paralyzed man. He framed that story around these two, two callings to come and follow me. And in our story today, Matthew does a similar thing. He he frames three more healing stories around two other kinds of stories. Uh, But these stories aren't stories about people who are interested in following Jesus. They are interested, uh, they're two stories of people who are coming to challenge Jesus and who are hostile toward him or who are at least suspicious of him. It begins with a challenge from the disciples of John the Baptist who come and say, Hey, Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, we we see that they're not fasting. And then it ends on the other end of these uh, three miracle stories uh, with the Pharisees saying that Jesus, he drives out demons by the prince of demons. And in between these two challenges to Jesus' ministry are these three stories about Jesus' healings that focus on the faith of the people who are being healed. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Matthew chapter nine verse 4, uh, verses 14 and 15. John's disciples came, and they asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Just a quick reminder about who these people are. These are disciples of John the Baptist, and uh, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but I've just been really struck by the fact that John the Baptist still had disciples following him. Now, usually, in my head, John the Baptist kind of come and he does his job of preparing the way for Jesus, and then he kind of exits on the scene. We hear a little bit from him in other parts of the gospel stories, but he still has disciples that are following him, and I just found that that was, that was curious, and it seems even that there might even be a little bit of a sense of rivalry among his disciples here. John came. He was a prophet sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. He called the people of Israel to repent and to turn from their sin and to turn to God, because the Messiah was on the way. But here we find John's disciples coming to Jesus and challenging him, asking him, "Why is it that we fast, but your disciples don't fast?" What do you hear in this question? Jealousy? I hear jealousy. What else do you hear in this question that they're asking of Jesus? It's not fair. What was that?: It's not fair. It's not fair. Okay? Self-righteousness. All right. Yeah, I hear all of those things, and what I want to focus on is is what Dan said. Self-righteousness. John's disciples believe that their way of following God is superior because of something that they do because they don't eat food at certain times, that they are in a better place, more righteous, because they do this spiritual practice called fasting. This is a self-righteous spirit. And it's a spirit that's in all of us in one way or another. And it is a spirit that has to die if we want the spirit of Jesus to move and work in our life. Because it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. John's disciples and the Pharisees are closed to the work of Jesus because of a spirit of self righteousness. And if we are going to be open to the work of Jesus in our own lives, open to the work of his healing and to the work of his salvation, then that self righteous spirit has to go. It has to die. Uh, This past Sunday, um, Luke and Emily were were at our house and um, Bill and Linda Valley happened to stop by and they brought Katie over a book uh, by Katie's favorite author named Flannery O'Connor. And so uh, we we had a conversation about Flannery O'Connor. She was a southern writer back in the the 40s and 50s. And um, Luke mentioned that he really likes Flannery O'Connor and that there was a particular story called Revelation. That was the first story that he read of hers that, that, uh, that he really liked, and we talked a little bit about the story. And then later this week, I was listening to a sermon on this passage, and somebody, and the, the, the pastor referenced that story. And so I thought, I think I need to read this story. And so I want to share a little bit about this story with you because I think it illustrates very well this spirit of self-righteousness. It's a short story about a, about a woman named Mrs. Turpin. And it begins with Mrs. Turpin walking into a doctor's office waiting room, and when she walks in, she immediately begins to size everything up. She begins to look around and notice everything that's wrong in the room. First, she can't believe how small it is. I mean, doctors get paid so much. Why can't they make their waiting rooms bigger? There's an ashtray in the middle of the room, and it's got some garbage in it, and she thinks, if I were in charge of this place, it'd be much more tidy than this, because Mrs. Turpin is a woman who keeps everything neat and tidy. And then she sizes up all of the people in the room. There's a boy sitting on the couch with a a dirty blue shirt on and a runny nose, and, and he won't move over so that she can have a seat. And his rude mother won't tell her boy to have him move over so that she can sit down. And there's a white, trashy-looking woman over in the corner. And there's a young woman there, and she, she's reading a book, and this woman has terrible acne. And we learn later in the story that this young girl's name is Mary Grace, and that's very important later in the book, or later in the story. And Mrs. Turpin sees this acne on her face, and she she pities this poor woman and how terrible it must be to be that age and to look like that. And she thinks to herself, you know, I might be fat, but at least I have nice skin. (laughs) We learn in this story that Mrs. Turpin likes to lay in bed at night and rank people. You know, the colored people and the white trash people there at the bottom, and people who have to rent their houses, and, and people who uh, are, are next, and then people who own apartments and small houses, they're a little higher than that. And then there's people like her who own houses and have land. And then there's other people who are above her who own houses and own lots of land. You get Mrs. Turpin, right? Okay. Okay. This is the spirit of self-righteousness. And Mrs. Turpin begins to control the conversation in the room, and of course she's very polite, but also very rude at the same time. She's a proper and virtuous and respectable Christian woman, and no one else measures up. That's Mrs. Turpin. Flannery O'Connor is telling us a story about the self-righteous spirit. And while none of us may be quite like Mrs. Turpin... Flannery does reveal to us how we do measure ourselves in comparison with other people. We find our value by comparing ourselves. And no matter how this works itself out in our lives, it is a self-righteous spirit and it closes us off to the work of Jesus in our lives. Self-righteousness can actually also work in reverse as well. There are some of us that compare ourselves to others to help us feel superior, but self-righteousness can also work in the negative as well. There are some who believe and who, who believe that their standing before God is because of their righteousness and they feel so bad in comparison to other people that they cannot imagine how anyone could like them, let alone how God could accept them. And so there are some of you who spend your life hating yourself and feeling as if you are never good enough. This is self-righteousness working in reverse. And it's the same spirit that needs to die in you today. Because it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is a gift from God, not of yourself, so that no one can boast. As Mrs. Turpin is controlling the room with her very politely rude conversation, this girl with acne, Mary Grace, is sitting there reading a book. And she begins to stare at Mrs. Turpin with these angry eyes. Everything that Mrs. Turpin says makes Mary Grace get angrier and angrier and angrier. Mary Grace seems to see right through her She seems to know her, and she just stares. And at one point, Mrs. Turpin, as she's talking about how great her life is to this room and how terrible everyone else is, she starts to get worked up about how wonderful her life is, and she says this, "'If it's one thing I am, it's grateful. When I think of all I could have been besides myself,' And what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, Thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way that it is. It could have been different. At the thought of this, she was so flooded with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy ran through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. And in that moment, Mary Grace takes her book and she throws it right at Mrs. Turpin, hits her right in the eye. And her eye gets all bloody. (laughs) And Mary Grace says, Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. (laughs) And for the rest of this story, Mrs. Turpin can't get Mary Grace's words out of her head. And she actually begins to hear the words as a revelation of God to her, but she doesn't get it. She keeps asking herself, why that girl, why God would say something like that to her? Because she's a good, virtuous Christian woman. So how can she be from hell at the same time? Then at the end of the story, Mrs. Turpin receives a vision. It's a vision of the saved, the blessed, who are on their way to heaven. And they're singing, and they're celebrating, and they're carrying on. And in the back of the line are people like her. She says, there were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. And battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized were people like herself, people who had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. And she leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior, and they alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. It is by grace you have been saved, (laughs) through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Even their virtues were being burned away. Today it is my hope that each of us would be struck by grace, that it would hit us like a book in the eye, that we would wake up from our self-righteousness. No matter how self-righteousness is working itself out in your life, that we would be struck by grace, that that self-righteous spirit in each one of us would die. And for some of you in the room today, it needs to hit you violently. We've been living, you've been living your life. I've been living my life in comparison with other people for so long that I don't even notice sometimes when I'm doing it. Some of you value and you measure yourself up to other people rather than valuing yourself in the work that Jesus has done for you. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is the work of God so that no one can boast. We are saved. By grace. And one of the many things that we are saved from is the self righteous spirit that finds our value and our identity in comparison to others. We are saved from that never ending and exhausting cycle of comparing ourselves to other people. To be saved by grace is to understand that even those things that you are most proud of, that you have offered to God, even your virtues, they're being burned away. It's all grace to be saved by grace is to understand our need for Jesus to know how lost and broken we are and because we then have come to the end of ourselves we have nowhere else to turn and so then we can be open to the work of Jesus in our life we receive the gift of God's grace through faith through believing and resting in his work for us And so Jesus responds uh, to the challenge of John's disciples by telling him that he is bringing something new. No one sews a patch, this is verse 16 of chapter 9, no one sews a patch of unshruck cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins, If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. What Jesus is saying here is that in his ministry, he is bringing a new thing that cannot fit into old forms and the old way of doing things. His way of grace bursts open the way of self-righteousness. Jesus here is not speaking against spiritual practices, things like fasting. Jesus, in fact, here says that his disciples will fast. What he's speaking against here is the spirit of self-righteousness, this religious spirit, the spirit that John's disciples came to that tried to put themselves in a place above him and his disciples because of the things that they do. And he uses this metaphor of wine and wineskins. And in the New Testament, in, uh, in the letters, uh, wine represents two different things. Can you think of the two things that wine represents in the Scriptures in the New Testament? Jesus' blood, and what else? It does represent life. The Holy Spirit. The blood, uh, wine represents the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Friends, the blood of Jesus is the price that he paid for every single one of us, and so we, ha- we can be saved from self-righteousness. There's this self-righteousness that looks around like Mrs. Turpin and compares. We take the good things that we do, and we believe that somehow that makes us superior. The blood of Jesus says that we don't get to live by comparison any longer. The blood of Jesus was the price that he paid for every single one of us. It is a level playing field. And so we no longer get to compare our virtues to the virtues of other people. We no longer get to weigh our value, the worth of our lives, compared to the value and worth of other people because we know exactly how much our lives cost. It costs the blood of Jesus. And so we don't need to live by that self-righteous spirit any longer. Wine in the New Testament is also compared to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, On the day of Pentecost, if you remember, the disciples had the Spirit come on them, and uh, things were happening, and the crowd saw them. And do you remember what they said? They said, what's happening to those guys? Are they they filled with new wine? (laughs) It's exactly what they were filled with. Scriptures say, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is compared to new wine. And as followers of Jesus, your life is now controlled by the Holy Spirit, a spirit that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the Holy Spirit, when the new wine comes, self-righteousness has to die. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. And so these next three stories about miracles that Jesus performs are stories about faith, about people who put aside self-righteousness and who came humbly to Jesus. Let's hear these stories read. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. While he was saying this, that is, talking about new wine and new wineskins, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, "'My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live.' And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, "'If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed.' Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put aside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all the region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, "'Have mercy on us, son of David.' When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, "'Do you believe that I am able to do this?' "'Yes, Lord,' they replied. And he touched their eyes and said, "'According to your faith, it will be done to you.' And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, "'See that no one knows about this.' But they went out and spread the news about them all over that region." While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute said, uh, spoke. And the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. These are stories about men and women who knew that their self-righteousness was nowhere near enough. Nowhere near enough to attain what they desired. Nowhere near enough to save them and to make them whole. A man with a dead daughter. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. A man blind. A man mute. These people were experiencing so much pain that they knew they needed Jesus. Friends, the real problem with self-righteousness is not so much that it's rude and arrogant, although it is that, The real problem with self-righteousness is that it deceives us. It deceives us into believing that because we do this or that thing, or because we hold this particular ideology, or because we are a champion of this great cause, or because we hold the correct political affiliation, or because we have the right theology, that because of those things that all is right in our world... Self-righteousness deceives me into believing that I have the capacity because of what I do or what I think or what I accomplish to bring about the necessary healing that is requiring for me to be saved, for me to be whole, for me to be right with God and my neighbor you see that? Self-righteousness, it is rude and proud, and that's bad enough. But the eternal danger of self-righteousness is that it deceives us from seeing our need for Jesus. It deceives us from experiencing our vulnerability and our weakness. Realizing that we are vulnerable is a terrifying thing. Admitting that we are vulnerable and weak is painful, but it is necessary if we are going to experience the work of Jesus in our life. And this is the common thread throughout each of these stories. The suffering and pain that these people are going through causes them to seek out Jesus. It's their pain, it's their trial, it's their deep need that then produces the faith in them that causes them to go out and to seek Jesus. These people come seeking the healing that they need because they have no other place to turn. The self-righteousness of John and the Pharisees could not be further from their mind. They know that they don't have power. They know that they are sick who are in need of a healer. It's the tragedy and pain of their lives that causes them to be open to the work of Jesus. Each of them come to Jesus in faith because they are in desperate, desperate need. And Jesus says to these people that they are healed according to their faith. I want to stop for a minute, and there's much about these words that I'm still wrestling with, but I want to say what this doesn't mean. This does not mean that these people came to Jesus in the strength of their own belief. This does not mean that these people believed hard enough, and they didn't doubt, and because of that, Jesus healed them. And there's a strain of thinking like that in the church, I think in our church, that if we pray for healing for someone, and if we believe hard enough, if we believe good enough, if we believe well enough, if in that moment we can do these mental gymnastics in our brain, that in that moment I don't have any doubts as I pray for this person, that somehow God will be impressed enough with my strength of faith to heal that person. It's not true. Friends, that's one more way to think about (laughs) self-righteousness. That somehow this healing has to do with my strength and not God's. To believe that the work of God depends on the strength of my believing? May it not be so, no one will ever be healed. I can promise you that. I remember being in a prayer meeting one time where the leader told us that if there was anyone in the room that doubted that we should leave the room... And I mean, I didn't want to be embarrassed. I'm, I'm one of the leaders in this group, and so so I stayed. And I again, I tried to do those mental gymnastics in my head, you know, to make myself think that I didn't doubt. And the person wasn't healed, and I, I left wondering if only I, maybe I was the cause in the room. Maybe I didn't fervently believe enough. Maybe if I wouldn't have doubted. Then that miracle would have happened. Friends, the people in this story did not come to Jesus in their strength, they came to him in their weakness and vulnerability. They came to Jesus because they were at the absolute end of themselves. And it's that spirit of vulnerability that made them open to the work of Jesus in their lives. And I want to say to us today that if we want to be open to the work of Jesus in our lives, physical healing, spiritual healing, healing in relationships, we must come to that same place of vulnerability and weakness if we want to be open and experience that kind of work in us. The spirit of self righteousness deceives us into believing that all is well in my world because I, or all would be well in the world if only I. The new wine that Jesus brings, the wine of his blood poured out for us, the wine of his spirit that fills us reminds us that we are always, always, always dependent and vulnerable creatures and that all will be well in our world because of Jesus. It is his authority and his power when we are open to him and when we will receive that work by faith that's able to bring true and deep healing for us. It's his authority. It's his power. And we come to him in our vulnerability and weakness and admit that we have nowhere else to turn. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Ben and Lisa, if you could come on forward. This is a moment for us to consider where is the place in my life where uh, I'm being self-righteous, where I hold on to because it makes me feel superior to other people, or it makes me feel that because I'm able to hold on to this thing that that is somehow makes me right with God. I don't know what that is for you. For me, for much of my life, it's been about uh, not, not actually always being a good and right person, but being perceived by everyone else to be a good and right person. And as long as I could keep that up, then all was well. I don't know what it is for you. That's what it has been for much of my life. What is it for you, your area of self-righteousness that you hold on to? And how can you today be vulnerable and weak, and come to Jesus and say, I'm at the end of myself, and I want to experience you in a more real and tangible way in my life today. That's the invitation for you to admit that thing that you're holding on to, and to let go, and to face your vulnerability, and your weakness, and your pain, and to receive what Jesus has for you today. Amen.